This podcast covers all things health, your body, your brain, and your well-being. Each week, we'll be joined by doctors, as well as the occasional guest, to talk about the health topics that mean the most to you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, Dr. Ali J, professor of heat and health at the University of Sydney, is going to help us unpack what heat does to our bodies, how it harms us, but most importantly, sustainable ways that we can use to stay cool when the temperatures rise. He is doing amazing work that is going to be critical for us as the director of the Heat and Health Research Incubator at the University of Sydney. That's where he gets to simulate a whole bunch of different heat wave conditions and see the effects on the human body. My name is uh, Professor Ollie Jay, and I am a director of the Heat and Health Research Incubator in the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of Sydney in Australia. Great, and while we're talking, is it okay if I call you Ollie? Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. That's the, yeah, the formalities are definitely not necessary. Yeah, but <laughs> thank you for checking. Okay, wonderful. Here is a quick word from our sponsor. We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems. Classic functional medicine back to basics health tips and special updates from the best doctors in the United States of America. Check out this health and wellness podcast shows. Explore Health Talk Weekly, Healthy Lifestyle Matters, Excellent Health Digest, Healthy and Free Daily and last but not least. Weekly Health and Fitness Corner. Also, check out Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told Fiction Podcast, for that real life on the go experience with the 27-year-old golden boy who made our guest invite number one list. He tells us about his story as it happens in real time and in real life. It's Nasty Boy CC the truest story never told. Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show. Well, thank you so much for joining us because um, as you are probably experiencing, and we certainly are here in Atlanta, and millions of Americans, millions of Europeans are experiencing the heat. So I would love to hear from you as a climate scientist and physiologist about what we know about how our bodies handle the heat. What are we supposed to be doing when it gets hot? Sure. Yeah. So <clears throat> there's a variety of things that are that are going on in the in the human body, and um, some of them might be a, a a bit of a surprise to to some of your listeners because I think traditionally it's tempting to to to, to think that the main problem is is uh, overheating leading to 
uh, heat stroke. And that is one of the mechanisms, of course, by which people get sick and ultimately potentially even die during extreme heat events. But um, it's actually not the, the main cause of mortality and morbidity during heat waves. So um, I'll break it down into mainly three different pathways through which people predominantly um, get sick in, in, during extreme heat exposure. So we'll start off with that first one, which is the obvious one, heat stroke. Um, so the main mechanism uh, is, uh, it comes down to the fact that we, we redistribute blood around the body when we get hot. So we have this pr- process called um, a cutaneous vasodilation, where um, the blood vessels in our skin open up and we redirect a lot of blood away from the body core towards the skin to try to help support heat dissipation to the surrounding environment. Now, um, as a consequence of that, because we've only got so much blood inside the body, um, we would, if we didn't have any other compensatory response, we would have a a reduction in in blood pressure, which would lead to things like syncope, etc. So in order to try to defend against that, uh, what we need to do is elevate our cardiac output, so the amount of blood that we pump around the body every minute, and um, the main way in which we achieve this, because um, our stroke volume, so the amount of blood that we, we shift with every beat of the heart, uh, remains the same, maybe a little lower, is through uh, upregulating our heart rate. And of course, if we are asking our heart rate to beat more times per minute, this requires the, the cardiac myocytes, so the, 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 um, the muscle cells of the heart to contract um, more often. Uh, every minute, and that requires oxygen. So if there's a limitation to the delivery of oxygen via the bloodstream through the coronary arteries, for example, um, and we have maybe a, um, a, an issue with the, that supply through coronary, coronary artery disease, for example, that could lead to a catastrophic cardiovascular event. Um, so this is probably why we see, we think from a physiological perspective, why we see uh, a greater number of people with cardiovascular disease um, falling ill or dying during extreme heat events. It's not necessarily because they overheat their core, their core temperature necessarily go, goes much higher, but we have this kind of um, this, this cardiovascular failure. So that's different from heat stroke. That's a great point. So I'm so I think that's so important for us to all realize is that when we think the temperature is too, getting too hot for us, we think we are going to overheat. Um, and that's the main way that people get sick from heat. But what you're pointing out is really that when we we are kind of set to live at this Goldilocks temperature, we work hard to stay in that range. And whether it's too hot or too cold, our body has to work to, to deal with that, to keep us there. That's exactly right. That's- so, what, yeah, so what we're seeing with, cardiovas- with, the, with the signal that we see in, in people with cardiovascular disease falling ill during extreme heat events is that it's, it's, we think it's more of a function of the way in which we try to defend body temperature autonomically through our basic thermoregulatory processes that then elicit different types of strain. And in this case, it's eliciting excess cardiovascular strain. And if there's an underlying infirmity of the cardiovascular apparatus, then that becomes problematic. But this is not to be confused, of course, with heat stroke. So if I then go on to the the next component, is people really, really overheating with heat stroke. So it, it comes from the same underlying processes that we have this redistribution of blood towards the skin. And then the, the secondary effect of that is that we have a reduced blood flow to the gut. So if we have a reduced blood flow to the gut, you have a reduced 
delivery of oxygen to the epithelial layers of the gut. And when that's coupled with, with high local tissue temperatures, what uh, physiological studies have demonstrated is that we start getting, uh, seeing an increase in gut permeability. So things like endotoxins, which are residing inside the gut, which are meant to stay in there, when we have this, this, this um, reduction in blood flow because we're very hot and we're trying to defend against body temperature and we have increase in local tissue temperature, these endotoxins start uh, leaking out of the gut, they enter the circulation, and that might then set off a cascade of uh, effects which ultimately may lead to um, coagulation um, a- a- around the body, um, multiple organ failure, and ultimately death. So that is actually, that's what heat stroke is. And that's really uh, two things. It's, again, this, this redistribution of blood flow. There's also the very high tissue temperatures that we see in, in, in the gut. I, I think this is so important because even having gone to medical school, I don't think we're, you know, really taught to think about heat stroke at certain temperatures. People come in and we're really taught about what you should do, what we need to do to sort of reverse damage to protect the life. But when you we, I don't think I ever really knew the gut heat connection, you know, and I think the last time we talked that struck me so much in terms of what we're thinking about when we're thinking about the dangers to human health, for sure, I think for so many people is heat strokes. I think number one, you pointed out, actually, it's sort of heat strain turning into heart strain, which is putting a lot of extra work on our heart. So for a lot of folks out there who have heart disease, um, particularly heart disease where we have blocked arteries going to the heart, um, that that strain can just really cause harm and cause more people to go to the hospital and more heart-related death. And then the second piece I just find like, you know, we always think about our guts now and our mental health. We think about our gut linked with so many other processes. And I think that it's really important for us to realize how when we're sending blood to our skin to help us cool down, that core part of our body is actually overheating and then breaking down. And all of that, like you mentioned, the endotoxins that are meant to stay in that, you know, they're not supposed to come into our blood our blood system. And then they do. And then that's what sets off this whole cascade of heat stroke. So like, I, I just never knew that. Yeah. And to be fair, a lot of this evidence has been generated by, by uh, physiologists who, who specialize in this particular area. And, uh, and a lot of these findings are, are relatively new in, you know, in the last decade or so. And, um, so uh, I had the good fortune of, of, um, of uh, being invited to be a co-author on a recent uh, review article in Nature, uh, Nature Reviews Disease Primers that was um, uh, led by um, Rezak uh, Bushama, who is a, a world-leading expert in, in heat stroke, alongside um, uh, my colleague uh, Lisa Leon, who's based in the United States, and, uh, and, and other co-authors as well. And uh, that review paper really nicely um, breaks down all of these kind of physiological uh, components. But because um, Rezak is, a, is, is a, a physician as well, it, it's nicely written because it provides it from the, the perspective of, 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 of practicing physicians, which I think is a really important component. And we talk in that review article about the difference between classic heat stroke 
an exertional heat stroke as well, and the different types of people that are are are, are um, vulnerable to those types of, of, of versions of heat stroke. Even though the underlying mechanisms are ultimately very similar, uh, the pathways are quite different, and therefore different people are are um, vulnerable to it. Well, that's so. I would love to talk about that. I think that's a key point because we think about people being vulnerable to the heat. And so a lot of people think, well, I'm not vulnerable because I have air conditioning or I'm not vulnerable because I'm young and I don't have any underlying health conditions. So let's break that down a little bit. Yeah, definitely. So um, the best way to think about the vulnerability to the heat is that we have a certain um, heat exposure, let's say, and we have a, a combined adaptive capacity to cope with that heat stress. And we can break down that adaptive capacity into two primary components. There's the physiological adaptive capacity and then the behavioral adaptive capacity. So if we think about the physiological behavioral, uh, sorry, the physiological adaptive capacity to start off with, that's like a, what our thermoregulatory function is like, whether there's any impairments to our ability to sweat. We haven't talked about sweating yet, and that's something we should get onto a little later on because it's no. very important. Um, uh, so, so things things like that. So that's the the, uh, the physiological capacity to cope with with with, with heat stress. There's also the cardiovascular and renal components of that, um, which we've touched on already. And then the behavioral capacity really kind of focuses on the type of um, uh, uh, adaptive behavior that we can engage in. And that may be something as simple as turning on an air conditioning unit. And one thing that we do know from the, you know, the ex- excellent data that's being collected by epidemiologists in this area is that people who are a much greater risk of heat-related illness during heat waves typically don't have access to air conditioning or in slightly fewer cases, they may have access to it, but they don't want to use it because they're worried about the costs. And then those things get inflated quite substantially when we have things like electricity blackouts, so interruptions to power, because everybody's turning their air conditioning units on, on at once, and consequently the, the frail inf- uh, energy infrastructure can't deal with it, and therefore we have kind of disruptions to power, so that becomes problematic as well. Um, and then if we think about people who don't have access to air conditioning, there are subcomponents of vulnerability within that group of th- that group of people. Um, so people who are confined to bed, for example, people um, who might have disabilities, uh, who are immobile, people who are socially isolated. All of these things are additional risk factors because they impair our ability to adaptively, uh, sorry, uh, behaviorally adapt to, uh, to to a hot environment, which essentially means trying to take action to um, reduce the the heat stimulus. Um, through 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 uh, differences in, in behavior, they may be personal cooling strategies. They may be seeking out a, a cold, an air conditioned space if you don't have air conditioning in your own uh, home, um, etc. So that's really how we kind of break it down. Yeah, I think that is a really so interesting because it. So one, we're thinking about exposure. So as temperatures rise, and your papers, you you had a set of papers in the Lancet with. Here is a quick word from our sponsor. We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems. Classic functional medicine back to basics health tips and special updates from the best doctors in the United States of America. Check out this health and wellness podcast shows. 
explore health talk weekly healthy lifestyle matters excellent health digest healthy and free daily and last but not least weekly health and fitness corner also check out nasty boy cc the truest story never told fiction podcast for that real life on the go experience with the 27 year old golden boy who made our guest invite number one list he tells us about his story as it happens in real time and in real life it's nasty boy cc the truest story never told go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe enjoy the show colleagues um, that are really sort of looking at what happens to our bodies and the fact that we've had so many reports at this point that show that if we continue the way we're going, we're just going to see more, more intense heat, longer periods of heat. Um, And so if we continue down that path, one, there's a higher risk that we're going to be exposed to this high level of heat, regardless of who we are. And then we kind of have this sort of like we're kind of balancing what we internally can manage ourselves with, like you mentioned, our physiology and then what we can manage ex- because of external factors like just our ability to get out of the heat. And that's not equal for everybody. And I want you to know that you can cut me off and tell me that I'm wrong at any moment. I, <laughs> no, I love that. I'm just I, I'm absolutely agreeing with everything you're saying right now. Yeah. Um, and I think one thing that is really important to emphasize is that a lot of people often think about extreme heat and go, well, you know, how much of a big deal is it? You know, we've got air, just turn the air conditioning on and you hear that from a lot of people. I think what's really important for for, for, for us all to understand is that the people who are most vulnerable don't have access to those type of strategies. Um, if, if people are living with poverty, for example, that's a huge risk factor when it comes to being able to, to, to take the appropriate action to uh, avoid the, uh, the worst of, of, of heat exposure due to this, this massive reduction in the behavioral adaptive capacity of people. And, um, and another thing that we also have been working on quite extensively is really trying to find ways in which we can identify the optimal strategies that people living in low resource environments can adopt in order to safely navigate their way through extreme heat events. That's one thing. And the other thing is, is even from the perspective of air conditioning use, is that what we do know is that at the moment, at least the way that they're built, is that they, gen- they, they use quite a lot of electricity. And if you use a lot of electricity in most places, um, so, so I live here in Australia, and um, the vast majority of the electricity that is, is generated here is generated by coal-fired power plants. And, of course, um, they're burning fossil fuels. They're emitting excess CO2, which then contribute to the problem in the future as well. So it's ensuring that while we're trying to in- increase people's adaptive capacity from a behavioral perspective, um, particularly if they're not as physiologically vulnerable, is that we find um, strategies that they can use that are not um, contributing to the problem down the road. Now, if you have very low behavioral capacity and very low physiological um, adaptive capacity, then I think the, the, the environmental concerns are secondary at the moment. The main thing is making sure that the most vulnerable can get their way through through, through heat waves now. Um, and so if air conditioning is, is a solution for, for that portion of the population, then, um, then, then so be it. And I think that's the, we know that it's very protective. At the same time, we need to find sustainable strategies 
uh, particularly for people who don't have access to to those types of um, that type of cool. Yeah, I think that it's so interesting because you kind of always think about it. And I'm glad you mentioned that you're in Australia. I wanted to talk about that. So I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, which is called Hotlanta because historically we have periods of high and intense heat. So a lot of us have, you know, there's a lot of air conditioning around. We, we have it. And so we sometimes take it for granted. And I will tell you that about a week ago, we had a storm because none of this comes just in and of its. It's not just a heat wave. It's also, you know, drought or power, you know, going out or storms or so we had a storm and our power went out. And we have not had air conditioning um, for about, I want to say, five days now. And I've got a two-year-old, I've got an 86-year-old dad at home, and I've got kids and, uh, you know, a husband on the side. So we don't <laughs> worry too much about him. But <laughs> so there, yeah, that's right. So there's one floor where the air conditioning unit is still functioning, and then the other two that that are not. So again, we you were kind of like in the space where we have taken it for granted. And now I'm like, which of these people get to stay in the area um, that that is cooler? Mm-hmm. And so my dad won. And so he gets to stay in, in the cooler area. <laughs> I mean, and I think that's, uh, that sounds like a wise decision. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because what we do know as well is that as even generally, you know, relatively healthy people, as we age, is that there are age-related decrements in the ability to regulate body temperature. And that's predominantly through the ability to sweat. So um, Mm. beyond the ages of 60, what we start seeing is um, a a reduced sensitivity of of the sweat glands to the the neurotransmitter that is responsible for sweating, so acetylcholine. Um, Studies have shown that that, uh, that peripheral sensitivity to to, to that uh, stimulus to produce sweat um, becomes blunted. Uh, as, as we age, and it seems it's pretty non-linear. So once we get to mm. sixty, it really starts to t- take hold. So by the time we get to our mid eighties, um, uh, the, the, the age-related decrements to sweating will be quite substantial. Now those can be offset by things like main, you know, keep staying in shape and, and, and maintaining physical fitness and things like that. Um, uh, but but that's 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 one of the reasons why even primary aging is a is a risk factor. Um, uh, from the perspective uh-huh. of, of extreme heat exposure. And so you mentioned sweating. So let's get into sweating because that's just such an important mechanism. Uh, well, it's, 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 uh, in fact, it's the only mechanism that works when we're exposed to extreme heat. So th- the ways in which we exchange heat with the surrounding environment is through two main pa- pathways that we can group together. There are dry heat transfer pathways, which are driven by temperature differences between the skin and the surrounding environment. And even when we're fully vasodilated, so that that um, increase in blood flow response that I mentioned at the start of our conversation, even if we have a maximal response of that, our skin temperature will max out around about 35 degrees Celsius. So, um, so what that, what's that in Fahrenheit? 95 Fahrenheit? I think. Oh my God! Sorry, yeah, I'm that's good. about 95. I was about to do my get out my yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, have to remember the audience that I'm speaking to here. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so if, if, if ambient temperature exceeds that skin temperature, our ability to lose heat via those dry heat transfer pathways, so radiation, convection, they are actually they end up being reversed. So we actually start gaining heat via 
those pathways. Plus, we're generating heat inside our body because our, our, we're alive and our, our cells are using energy and, 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 and heat is, is generated as a byproduct of cellular metabolism. And that gets upregulated quite substantially when we start moving around because large muscle groups will be contracting and that generates lots of heat as well. So that leaves only one pathway left to actually lose heat to the environment, and that's the pathway of evaporation. So that is why we have evolved to, to, to be quite good at sweating, because our sweat glands will produce sweat, it will sit on the skin surface, and it's the evaporation that helps us cool down. It's not the production of sweat that cools us at all, it's the evaporation of the sweat. And that's the, the driving force for that evaporation of sweat is um, dictated by a couple of things. The main thing is the humidity difference between the skin and the air. So we've got high skin humidity because we're sweating, so it's wet. Um, but if the air has a lot of moisture in it, that means that the, that, that driving force for, for the evaporation of sweat from our skin gets suppressed. And that's why when we have a warm environment that's above 35 degrees Celsius, 95 degrees Fahrenheit, and if it's humid, that's why it becomes so uncomfortable and such a problem. Because the only way in which we can cool ourselves is through evaporation, yet that sweat can't evaporate. So there's a couple of things that we can do. We can start increasing airflow across the skin surface to try to promote the evaporation of sweat. Um, the thing is then you've kind of got the competing effects of adding extra convective heat to the body and that, how that balances with extra evaporation. But um, uh, we've done some physio- several physiological studies demonstrating that um, things like electric fans, for example, are, that are much cheaper and cleaner to, to, to operate relative to air conditioning, they can be used quite safely up to, um, you know, at least 100 degrees Fahrenheit, maybe a little higher than that, especially if it's humid. Um, uh, and, and that kind of goes against, actually, uh, a lot of the public health guidance that's out there from organizations such as the Sense of Disease Control, the World Health Organization. So we're, we're, we're trying to urge those, 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 um, those organizations to reconsider um, the guidance around things like the use of fans during heat waves because they really offer the most vulnerable quite an accessible and easy to use solution that they're currently being told not to use um and i don't want to sort of knock you off your train of thought but i think that's really important for people that are out there who are sort of that we've heard that there's certain there's a threshold beyond which we should not be using fans because they can be dangerous so i think the key point here is that Above, you know, around 100 degrees Fahrenheit, a fan, especially if it's really humid, a fan is actually going to be really potentially helpful. Uh, yeah, and we've demonstrated that quite um, repeated, well, repeatedly in different studies. Um, so we've demonstrated that to 39, 40 degrees Celsius, so that's about 102 to 104 Fahrenheit. Which is why I did my, uh, my homework on my Fahrenheit scale. Before yeah, thank you. Thank you for doing <laughs> um, that. <laughs> yeah, we show that you know, with, with, with high humidity environments, the fans do just, uh, again, always prove beneficial. They keep core temperature lower. They reduce the cardiovascular strain, which is really important. The only trade-off is that it does uh, increase your sweat rates a little bit more. So if you don't replace those fluids with extra water, then it will accelerate dehydration. And we haven't talked about dehydration yet, and it's something that we should um, touch on a little later on. Um, but as long as you're using those, those devices and you're, you're drinking um, uh, uh, an extra glass of water every hour or two should be, should be enough to ensure that the dehydration doesn't get aggravated by these devices. Here is a quick word from our sponsor. 
We take this few seconds off to inform you our valued loyal listener about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems. Classic functional medicine back to basics health tips and special updates from the best doctors in the United States of America. Check out this health and wellness podcast shows. Explore Health Talk Weekly, Healthy Lifestyle Matters, Excellent Health Digest, Healthy and Free Daily and last but not least. Weekly Health and Fitness Corner. Also, check out Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told Fiction Podcast, for that real life on the go experience with the 27-year-old golden boy, who made our guest invite number one list. He tells us about his story as it happens in real time and in real life. It's Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told. Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show. Now, with this said, what we do know is that from our studies is that once temperature goes much higher, particularly if it's very dry. So I'm thinking of environments like in the United States, uh, Southwest, for example, where it can be very hot and arid. Um, what we do know is under those circumstances, fans are, are detrimental. And we've seen quite dramatic responses uh, demonstrating that. Um, aggravation of cardiovascular strain, aggravation of a, a greater rate of heating um, when using these fans relative to not using these fans. But that's under conditions where it's kind of 45 degrees Celsius, so that's about 110, 112 Fahrenheit, maybe a little higher than that, and very dry, so less than 10% relative humidity. And under those situations, what's happening is, is you're, you're blowing hot air on the person. Uh, it doesn't accelerate evaporation because all the sweat evaporates anyway because it's so dry. So that driving force for evaporation right. is really quick but you're still adding the extra heat to the body. So it's kind of this trade-off between temperature and humidity. Um, That's where people kind of talk about the convection oven, where you're sort of like heating yourself with that's exactly the right. high yeah. heat. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, and I think that's probably where the initial guidance came from. Um, uh, it was, it, it's, it's, it's this um, uh, analogy of, of, of being in a, in a convective oven. But I think it's really important to recognize that, that humans sweat as opposed to a turkey in oven that just sits there and cooks. Human sweat, and you can accelerate the evaporation of that sweat with extra airflow. So we need to take that into account when we're thinking about uh, recommending these um, these different strategies. Wow, that is really helpful. And I'd love to talk about dehydration because I think that's a, another thing where a lot of people will say, well, if you just keep drinking water, you'll be fine. It doesn't matter what what's going on. So talk us through dehydration and... yeah how you recommend sort of thinking about it. Sure. Yeah. So well, dehydration is obviously an important component. And um, I'll just describe maybe uh, first how dehydration impacts the body. So I've described two pathways with which people can get quite sick um, when they're exposed to extreme heat, the cardiovascular strain component, and then the heat stroke component. Um, and both of those can get aggravated if we are chronically dehydrated. Um, in both cases, it's due to the fact that if we're losing body water, we're not replacing it, um, not just through drinking, but also absorbing that, uh, that extra water that we're drinking, which is an important consideration, is, uh, is we have a shrinking, uh, a, a reduction in our blood volume. So 
So if you're reducing that blood volume, that puts more strain on the heart to move a fixed amount of, um, of blood around the body every minute, of course, because stroke volume goes down with the reduction in, in blood volume. And um, it makes that, uh, it makes that, that, um, that vasodilatory response uh, more difficult as well. So it can aggravate um, heat stroke as well. So, um, and then the other way in which dehydration can chronically affect human health during extreme heat exposure is also through its impact on the kidneys as well. So one of the signals that we see in the epidemiological literature is an increase in uh, or a greater risk of negative health outcomes in people with renal disease. And um, we think that is due to, um, if we have chronic dehydration, then that will increase renal strain and that can increase the risk of chronic kidney disease, particularly if people are exposed to heat stress on a, in, a, in a repeated way. So um, there's some pretty decent evidence that's coming out demonstrating early onset chronic kidney disease and ascribing that to uh, multi-day heat exposure, particularly in settings where people don't have access to clean water. So then they're, they're chronically dehydrated every day at work. They then don't fully rehydrate when they go home. They then start work dehydrated the next day. And then it's just this cumulative aggravation. And if that keeps on happening, then that can lead to these repeated insults on the kidney, which which ultimately impair kidney function, then can lead to chronic kidney disease. Now, in those settings, though, those studies haven't quite been able to uncouple the heat effect alone and the dehydration effect alone relative to other factors that might be in, those, in, in that environment. But I think it's um, uh, it, it's pretty plausible to, to to consider the impact of dehydration on renal function. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.